The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. It began with the forging of the Great Rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the Dwarf Lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived. For another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. As you can tell by our introduction, we are going to be talking about the psychology of Lord of the Rings. Also, today we do have a very special guest. Dr. Mike Mullen is here with us. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show. Would you mind telling our guests a little about yourself? Certainly. Well, I've been a licensed psychologist since 2006 and been working mostly in medical settings. I used to work at MD Anderson Cancer Center down in Houston, Texas, then the Houston VA, and now the Minneapolis VA. So I've been working with veterans for the past 10 years, which has been just tremendous work for me to be involved in. And as a hobby, kind of a side interest back in 2011, I had started a blog on the psychology of tabletop role-playing games. And that picked up some steam and was kind of the same time around Twitter was becoming more popular. And I connected with a lot of the community for tabletop role-playing game enthusiasts. And my blog got a bit more popular and turned into a podcast where I was interviewing people. So it's been great to combine the mental health side of what I do in my professional life with some of the hobby stuff I do when I'm not busy at work. <laughs> yes, we all, so we all cool. have hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> and we all enjoy pop culture, which is why we're here today. And we're going to be discussing Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpieces. So The Hobbit first released in 1937, and Lord of the Rings was first published in 1954. Yet all these decades later, Tolkien's works are still known throughout the world. What do you think it is about the series that has been so influential after all these years? I think that's a really excellent question. You know, I 
first came into contact with the book, not as a child, but later on in life, probably high school, college. And when I was in graduate school, I ended up teaching a class on modern mythology for this program that I went to Iowa State University and they had the talented and gifted program for, for children. And I taught a class on modern mythology that I had to develop from the ground up. And it was basically teaching students about the movies and stories that they're growing up with now and how it all replicates ancient mythology and how it's kind of like the same story told over and over again. And I think even though Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that was published in 1949. So that was published after The Hobbit came out. So certainly Tolkien wasn't influenced by that necessarily. But the story, Lord of the Rings, just has so many themes that really cut through and are very core to the human experience. It just has the hero's journey elements of separating from the ordinary world, descending into this special world, having some type of ordeal, and then returning home. A lot of stories, whether it's Harry Potter or Star Wars or something like The Matrix, it all kind of follows that same pattern. And so The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, it pulls you in. It sucks mm-hmm. you in because you can identify with the main character. Then they get whisked away to some other location, and you're just kind of living vicariously through them. And there's lessons to be learned and, and great characters. And, of course, Tolkien's a genius with language, and it's just very well written. The depth is pretty extraordinary. For him to just write multiple languages to come up on his own and just add that to the story is pretty wild. So I think it just endures. I agree. Absolutely. I think that through the lens of Tolkien's world that he's created, we can see many metaphors that are essentially a window into our own human experience, whether it's separation from a friend or whether it's fighting for a cause that's greater than us. And I think never has it been more relevant than it is today, you know, where I think worldwide there are people who are facing tremendous struggles and are attempting to stand up to evil for something that they believe in. We're seeing great examples of courage and sacrifice in the name of good and creating the sense of hope that is absolutely necessary in dire times. And so I think that essentially Lord of the Rings has a theme that is endless and timeless. And I think that it's relatable to many people who are either reading the books or watching the series from multiple aspects. You were talking about the human experience, and Tolkien was heavily influenced by his own experiences during World War One or the Great War, as it's called then. He writes, One has indeed personally come under the shadow of war to feel fully its oppression, but as the years go by, it seems now often forgotten that to be caught in youth by 1914 was no less hideous an experience than to be involved in 1939 and following years. By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. How do you think his war experiences are reflected in Lord of the Rings? I think that it absolutely influenced them. We're seeing examples of emotional and physical injury on multiple characters. When Frodo himself got injured, it was understood that his wound would never heal. I think it was Gandalf that said that his wound will never fully heal. He will carry it for the rest of his life. His strength returns. That wound will never fully heal. He will carry it the rest of his life. And yet to have come so far, still bearing the ring, the Hobbit has shown extraordinary resilience to its evil. 
It is a burden he should never have had to bear. There's this understanding that not all wounds are physical. There are wounds that are emotional, and we're seeing that in Frodo, we're seeing that in Sam, we're seeing that in, in Gollum, who we're going to talk about later, I imagine. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the terrible wounds of war on multiple characters, and I imagine it's impossible not to go through what Tolkien went through, where all of his friends have died except for one person it sounds like and i think that what he does really well was to put his pain into his writing to allow the reader to feel what that pain feels like whether it's allowing us to understand what it's like to lose a friend or allowing us to understand what it's like to lose hope all of it felt so real and so relatable because that pain i imagine might have been still so fresh on Tolkien's mind, even decades after the war, when he was writing Lord of the Rings. Mike, do you have anything to add? Absolutely. I think it certainly must have influenced his writing, and I think he even acknowledged that years later, talking about just the passage when Frodo was walking through the dead marshes mm -hmm. and seeing the dead bodies of, of friends, of foes. Don't go into of, the lights! Yes, <laughs> nameless, nameless people and just the horror of that landscape there are dead things dead faces in the water His exposure to that in World War One, I, I believe he was involved in the Battle of the Somme, and I think it certainly influenced the way he approached writing this story. And I also, at the same time, because I don't want Tolkien purists to, to get mad at me, is that I know he really disliked allegory. And there's even, I think, in the foreword to the Fellowship of the Ring, he says that he dislikes allegory. And uh, the quote I pulled up is, I think that many confuse applicability with allegory but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. Mm -hmm. So I think just a simple one-to-one, -one, well, the ring is a nuclear weapon or like, I don't think that was his intention, but certainly the writing, the sense of pain, the sense of loss is certainly baked in to the Lord of the Rings. I think, again, it resonates with the initial question you asked of why does this book endure? Why does mm -hmm. it continue to have such a connection with the people who read it? I think one of the reasons is the author went through a lot of pain and suffering in his own life and translated that into the various characters and situations in the book. You know, maybe you're not totally aware of that as a reader, but again, I think it connects with you on a core level. Right. Whether it's allegory or human experience, in Lord of the Rings, we see so many signs of other potential metaphors, especially in terms of mental health. Can you both talk on the mental health disorder connections? I think one of the things that really spoke to me was the representation of the Nazgul. And again, I, I, I can't speak to Tolkien's intention, but just the way I, as a reader and as a viewer, viewed the Nazgul, they seem so nightmarish right and 
yet the more we try to avoid them, especially by putting on the ring, right, the more Frodo tries to escape them, the more they can actually sense him. And I think to me, as a therapist, this really connected in terms of representing anxiety, for example. So for people with different phobias or panic disorder who might try to avoid their anxiety symptoms might actually end up increasing their anxiety experience. Much like in The Lord of the Rings, the more we try to avoid something, the more likely it is to actually occur. So with Frodo, the more frequently he puts on the ring, the more he is noticed by the Nazgul and the stronger the the eye (laughs) and the eye of Sauron, of course, and also the stronger the ring's influence is on him. And then, of course, many of us have talked about the ring being very similar to what a lot of addiction disorders are like, right? In terms of Frodo and especially Gollum and and other people who've been exposed to it, yearning for it as if it's something that they are absolutely addicted to or must have to the point that they would kill for it or die for it. My precious. I agree on the addiction piece. And as you're talking about the Nazgul, I was thinking about your superhero therapy book and the illustrations of the different like anxiety and despair and some of the other things. And now I, I'm going to always think of a Nazgul when I think about anxiety now. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. That's kind of a cool thing. In terms of the, the ring as a representation of addiction, you know, when I work with patients, it's always one of the first questions I ask if they are struggling, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or gambling, or some other type of behavior. Pornography seems to be certainly a thing. Talk with them about, first, what are the benefits of this behavior? What about it is rewarding? What about it gives you pleasure? And I think about the ring, it's sort of, even in The Hobbit, starts out as kind of harmless. It helps Bilbo get away. It helps Frodo in a couple situations. But the more you expose yourself to the ring, like you were talking about, there's more consequences. And I think there's power in terms of treating addictive behaviors or substance use is to first acknowledge there's something you're getting out of this. What what are those benefits? What are you using it for? When you can identify those things with a patient, I think it gives you some leeway to say, okay, how else could you get those needs met? Rather than just starting from, okay, you need to not use the ring. You just need to not use it. Mm-hmm. Like what can replace the ring? And I think that is an interesting thing that stuck out with me from the story and thinking about metaphors and mental health disorders. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that pretty much everybody that wanted the ring wanted it because it allowed them to feel important, powerful, good enough. At least to some extent, these are things that many of us seek as humans. Not Maybe not all of us seek power, but many of us want to feel that level of connection or appreciation or, or belongingness as some of the people felt through the ring. And I think sometimes our avoidance behaviors temporarily allow us to meet those universal needs. However, in the long term, we can actually be kept further from them. And as you said, sometimes by allowing people to identify other ways of recreating those needs, we can create healthier behaviors to take place of some of the unhealthy ones. 
This is a very interesting perspective for me to hear you both talk about. And one thing that I notice is he does have a support system in terms of Frodo because Samwise is always there. He's like, can I take any of this burden from you? Can I be there? If people really sit back and look, they have the support system in in general. I guess I'm generalizing, but where people will be there for them. The point about what I'm trying to say is that there's a support system and there's other heroes that are involved in this. Speaking of Samwise and heroism, who are the heroes of this story and why? To me, the obvious answer is is Frodo. Frodo is sort of the linchpin of the entire Fellowship. And obviously the Fellowship gets fractured, but I think you can make a case that there are a lot of characters in the story that, that are heroes. There's, mm-hmm. there's Aragorn, there's Gandalf, there's Merry and Pippin, there's Sam, there's Gimli, there's Legolas, there, you, know, you can go on and on, there's Eowyn. There's so many layered stories of different characters in the book that start at a certain location and they have a journey to another location by the end of the story. I can't think of any character that really stays in the same place. Even Boromir, who, going back to the ring, is very tempted by the ring and more so than anyone else in the Fellowship gives into that temptation. He even has a journey and you you know, he does heroic things in, in the story. They took the little ones. He's down. Frodo. Where is Frodo? I let Frodo go. Then you did what I could not. I tried to take the ring from him. The ring is beyond our reach now. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. No, more. You fought bravely. So it's an interesting question. I would say, you know, if you have to pick, well, who's the hero of the story? I would say Frodo. But uh, I don't know. Uh, Gina, what do you think? I think that I agree with you in that the entire fellowship is heroic as, as well as the many others that they've met along the way. To me, the character that really stands out is Sam, actually. Um, I think that Sam is absolutely unwavering in his loyalty to Frodo. Sam acknowledges when he starts feeling manipulated by the ring and refuses to carry it. And I think that was a strong choice on his part. And yet he carries Frodo and gives his rations and water to Frodo on numerous occasions to make sure that Frodo is safe. And I think that he constantly puts his life on the line for his friend and for the mission. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon. The orchards will be in blossom. And the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket. And they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields. And eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Sam. I can't recall the taste of food. Nor the sound of water. Nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's, there's nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him. My waking eyes! Then let us be rid of it! Once and for all! 
Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you. But I can carry you! Come on! Of course, I think related to this, everybody, that assisted Frodo is by all means heroic, but uh, the character that stood out to me the most is Sam. Yeah, Sam is great. And while you guys were saying this, I, I couldn't help but revisit my childhood, and I, I started singing in my head, Frodo of the Nine Fingers. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. And actually, if I can just add one more thing, I'm, you know, regarding to what you were saying, Dustin, I think Frodo was extremely fortunate in a lot of ways in terms of having Sam by his side, in terms of having Gandalf's support, in terms of having Marion Pippin and he still felt alone and in a lot of ways was alone even with Sam by his side he was alone with his burden and I think that many people even when they have a support group with them might feel alone because not many people might understand or feel their burden and I think not many people can carry their burden for them so I think that it was really powerful for me as somebody that works with people with PTSD to see Frodo carrying this ring and how it became heavier and heavier and heavier over time and even though Sam and at times others were by his side he still felt alone and he still felt like he didn't have others. It was interesting what you said about connection and how there are some, especially in the case of Frodo, might not understand where he's coming from. But Smeagol or Gollum definitely understood what he was going through because he had the burden for hundreds of years. How many, I mean, hundreds of years did he have to deal with this burden? And he was there by his side at the end of it. So Smeagol is a very interesting character. At times he's a helper and at times he's a villain. What is your take on Smeagol? I think it's a fascinating character because it, it's shades of gray. He's not a, a clear villain. At times he certainly is, but at other times he's sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And my memories of, of Gollum are kind of confabulated between reading the book a bunch of times and also seeing the movie a bunch of times. See, that's a great so, word, confabulated, because I was trying to tell Janina that earlier. I was like, man, I, I read the book so long ago, and, and we recently rewatched Lord of the Rings. But right. I, I, my my mental state of the the story is like what did you say confabulated (laughs) confabulated Confabulated. it's like yes anyway i'm sorry to interrupt you no but it's such a great character and even until the very end there's this battle going on inside of that character in many ways that's certainly the movie portrayed very well with this amazing technology again looking out because there's there's been a lot of words written about well what would you diagnose Gollum with which i thought was kind of an interesting question but there was actually an old article in the british medical journal so a legit journal where they go through and they do a assessment of Gollum and diagnose him with schizoid personality disorder which again i thought was sort of interesting that a journal would do that but i you know lord of the rings was pretty well on everyone's mind back around the time that it was written, I think, in the early 2000s. So there's odd behaviors there, uh, spiteful behavior, there's ill intent, and then there's a innocence of sorts that you can kind of see through the centuries of suffering that this character has been through, and you can kind of see a little bit of the Smeagol character come out. 
kind of a normal person who's been through some extraordinary circumstances and is dealing with it the best he can, but at the same time has some bad intentions and is trying to take advantage of other characters in the story we care about. So there's this conflict, even as you read the book, of I don't like this character. Even Gandalf talks about you know having pity for the character. There's something down there. It's Gollum. Gollum. He's been following us for three days. He escaped the dungeons of Barad-dûr. Escaped. Or was set loose. And now the ring has drawn him down. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring. As he hates and loves himself. Smeagol's life is a sad story. Yes, Smeagol, he was once called. Before the ring found him. Before it drove him mad. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that lived deserved death. And some that died deserved life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? It's addressed in the book. I think it's handled so well. And we'll probably be talking about Gollum 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And it's great that this character generates so much discussion. Yeah, I agree. And I actually think that he's probably the most complicated character of the series because there are these two sides to him, right? The light and the dark. And to me, it was kind of similar to many of us as in like we all have these light and dark side in us, right? And the one that we feed is the one that takes over. And it seems like the Gollum side was sort of like the dark side, the protector side. And then the Smeagol side was the more empathic, more loyal side. And what I observed in the movies anyway, is that when Frodo was more compassionate towards Smeagol, Smeagol's persona took over where he was loyal and he even sent Gollum away. And he said, no, I'm going to protect Master and I'm going to do what I promised. Master. Precious, they stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbitses, wicked, twitchy, false. No, no, master. Yes, precious, false. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. And a thief. No. Murderer. Go away. Go away. <laughs> I hate you. What? 
Leave now and never come back. No. Leave now and never come back. Leave now and never come back. But when Smeagol viewed Frodo as someone who betrayed him, and especially when Smeagol experienced a large amount of abuse, both from Sam as well as from, from many other people, and when he thought that Frodo had betrayed him, that's when Gollum returned as almost like a protector and as someone who will then take charge. And a part of me always wondered what would happen if both Frodo and Sam were always kind to Smeagol, and I truly don't know. But I wondered if he would have ended up the same in the end. I mean, he, he might have when they got to Mordor because the power of the ring was really strong and might have still guided Smeagol to attack Frodo. However, I still wonder if he would have attempted to hurt Frodo the way that he did. Yeah, it kind of gets into the idea of just, you know, thinking about your own behavior of how you treat people or how you approach situations. And if you approach it with a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear that you might have this idea of self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you're you know, interacting with people and you're very skeptical, then you, know, you probably won't form a trusting relationship with somebody. But if you approach that with some empathy and some kindness, then you're likely to get that in return. You know, how Gollum's character components come out. It, it seems like this whole story and all the characters in it, they're all just full of all these different kind of struggles, whether it's Frodo with the ring or with Smeagol wanting the ring back or with Aragorn not really wanting to accept the fact that he's the king and take that journey there. Where I'm going with this is Tolkien himself has really struggled with returning home after the war. So how is this struggle depicted when Frodo, Sam, Mary Pippin return to the Shire? It kind of showcases something that I think is overlooked in just pop culture. And I work with somebody at the VA that does a lot of research on veterans who have been deployed to combat situations. And the most common response to trauma is resilience. And I think that's often lost in a lot of discussions about exposure to traumatic situations and PTSD, I think there's sometimes an assumption that if you're exposed to a traumatic situation, that you just automatically get PTSD. And that's that's not the case. And it's not the case for Sam, Mary, and, and Pippin. They, they return to the Shire, and my memories of the book is that they're all certainly changed, and in some ways, they're more resilient. They're changed for the better. They've learned things. They've developed. It's not the same for for Frodo. Frodo, as Gandalf mentions, and you know, you were talking about earlier, that he has some wounds that are never going to heal, both physically and emotionally, spiritually, however you want to define that. But looking at Frodo's inability to go back home and really cope with a new normal, I think that's something I work with my patients quite a bit is that exposure to events that are so far outside the normal range of human experience for the vast majority of people uh, being exposed to like repeated traumatic experiences and then coming back to your home and just having to make it work. I mean, that's a challenge. At the very least, it's an adjustment. You know, most people, I think, can respond to that pretty well. And some, it's it's not a weakness. It's just it, take, it changes your brain. It, you know, treatment can help and medications can help. So I really think it's interesting that in the book that you see different responses 
to this really traumatic series of events for these characters. I very much agree with what you have to say, and I think that much like what we see in service members who are returning from the war, this can also be applied to other individuals who are affected by trauma. For example, individuals who had experienced sexual assault might also have a very different experience uh, going through their day-to-day life, whether it's literally coming home from work, for example, or from the hospital, or whether it's engaging in things that used to be mundane, like eating breakfast or taking a shower, now all of a sudden might feel foreign. And um, there's a, a part of us that might not fully return from something like that. Um, and Frodo actually has this really powerful quote toward the end where he says, How do you go on when, in your heart, you begin to understand there is no going back? How do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when, in your heart, you begin to understand there is no going back? There are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep, have taken hold. Many of us can relate to that, whether it's loss of a loved one, whether it's a traumatic experience, whether it's some kind of break or separation, there are some things that hurt forever. For example, it's been 24 years since my grandfather had passed away, and to this day, I miss him every single day. This is a person that has raised me, that has inspired the morals and core values that I have as a person, as a therapist, and as a woman. It's been such a long time, but to this day, there's still a part of me that isn't there. There's still a part of me that's broken because of this loss. And I imagine many people out there can relate to something like that. Well, from what you guys are saying, it seems like it's different for each person. I mean, this question just kind of came up right now. Are symptoms people have based just solely off their own experience. Are you saying that our symptoms of, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder or another mental health disorder, are they based on an individual's experience? But not only their experience, their environment too, prior and after. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's the whole nature-nurture debate, which maybe you were going to talk about, yeah. That's right. And actually, there um, there is what's called a biopsychosocial model. So what that means is that a part of what might predict or lead to certain reactions in us is our genes, our biology, right? The way that our ancestors have dealt with things or what they've been exposed to. For example, there are research studies showing that descendants of Holocaust survivors are more likely to be prone to distress. Uh, they might be more likely to develop PTSD or depression or other mental health disorder. Um, Similarly, on the social side, the more support we have, the more likely we are to recover or the more likely we are to have more healthy coping skills and mechanisms. And then there's the psychological factor, which is the way that we're evaluating the event, how we think about it, how we process the event, and then the behaviors that we choose to cope with it. So I think that there is an interaction of these three components that happens in every individual. And so it's not just our environment that we are the product of it's also our biology and then it's also our own way of responding and thinking conceptualizing the situation 
as a psychologist, one of the things we do is, is assess all these things. So, you know, it's not just a matter of giving someone a symptom checklist and saying, okay, can you fill this out? They fill it out and they're like, oh, okay, well, you have X, Y, and Z symptoms, so that means you have this disorder and you get this treatment. Like, there's more nuance to it. There's more of a, an interview that has to happen to get a sense of what are all the different elements, components that might be contributing to the representation of a mental health disorder or just, you know, what's interfering in the veteran's life or the patient's life and how did it get there? How did it develop over time? We're very huge proponents about representation and inclusion. One thing that I noticed, especially from watching the shows recently, is that there's not very much inclusion. <laughs> Do you guys have anything to say about that? Yeah, in rewatching the films, it does seem like the vast majority of the cast is Caucasian, and they're kind of the few token women. You know, there's Arwen, Eowyn, and Galadriel, you know, have significant talking roles. Most of them don't really talk to each other. I didn't quite watch the movie or read the book specifically to see if Lord of the Rings would pass the Bechdel test. I kind of wonder if it would at this point. That That is, I guess, my only one tiny little critique for the way that the films were made, because I think that there was an opportunity to actually have a more diverse cast. Um, I think the movies were exceptionally well done and well acted, well directed, but I would have liked to see more representation especially since it's Middle Earth, we, we could definitely see a variety of different skin colors and, and different representation. Um, so that was just one thing that stood out to me. Yeah, I think in terms of the, the representation, certainly in the film, diversity of the cast, it's, it's male, it's white. So it's, it's not a strength in that regard. I, I read an interesting, or maybe I'll post a few of the resources I've mentioned on Twitter, but I read a review of The Lord of the Rings, book, the, the book primarily, about how it treats the idea of othering. For the most part, the book kind of holds that othering is, is a bad thing. So there's even the disputes between dwarves and elves and uh, Gimli and Legolas mm-hmm. kind of work out those differences as time goes on. And granted, both actors in the movie are white who played them, but I think the idea in, in the book is that just assuming things about another race, whether it be elves or dwarves, and like behaving in that way is not seen as a good thing. It was an interesting take. I hadn't really thought of it in that way before in terms of representation. And certainly with the themes of nature, nature versus technology, it you know, definitely stresses that you know, nature is a good thing, like Saruman and trying to kind of take advantage of nature, and that's portrayed in a very negative light. Um, so I think you have to stretch maneuver a little bit to try to talk about representation in Lord of the Rings as a positive or as a strength. So it's not a strength of the book, certainly. I think it was John Boyega, uh, Finn had even called that out, and also Game of Thrones I called it out. I think he made some public comments about this very thing that, um, you know, fantasy authors and going forward and creating worlds, that this should be something that we're all taking into consideration. And hopefully that happens. You could see, in my opinion, black or Asian dwarfs or elves or humans, (laughs) you know, and more women involved, too. Ultimately, it comes down to we just all hope to have a good representation, a factual representation, kind of like how we exist in our own world with all the diversity that we see. I think that one of the themes of this story is hope. How does hope play a role in the series as well as in therapy? And how might it have affected Tolkien himself? 
You know, I think that factor, hope, I think that is the driving force of the entire fellowship, of the mission, that up until the very end, hope is the single most important element that keeps everyone going, that even as the characters are tired and exhausted and hungry, it's this most important factor that keeps them going, even as they're tired, as they're hungry, as they're sleep-deprived. It's the the factor that allows the characters to do the impossible. We saw the fellowship running for, what, several weeks in order to catch up with the hobbits, in order to rescue Merry and Pippin. We saw characters going for days without food and water, and it is when they're giving up hope that it becomes difficult for them to manage. I think when Gandalf and Aragorn believe that Frodo had been killed, that's when you see their spirits fall. But when they realize that he hadn't, that's when they regain their strength. I think that both in the series, in real life, in therapy, for example, hope is what can make a big difference between whether we live or die sometimes. Hopelessness is one of the biggest predictors of suicide or suicidal ideation. For me, for example, as a therapist, if we're able to help our clients find a sense of hope and inspire a sense of hope, that is when we're able to encourage some really positive change and recovery. Yeah, I agree with that. And I've been trying to contain myself because I'm so excited about these topics. My nerdiness and geekiness is definitely going to come out more on this Bring question. It. <laughs> um, I think this is such one of those core themes that's so important and why this book is going to be read hundreds of years from now is this search for meaning. And it reminds me of one of the first kind of psychology-related books I read in my training in college was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And if you haven't read that book, go read that book. It is an amazing book written by someone who survived the Holocaust and talked about finding meaning in that situation and just this terrible human suffering. And I just think that applies really to any of us, but certainly into Lord of the Rings. And there's the one speech by Sam mm -hmm. at the end of the Two Towers. And I went back uh, before you called me here this evening and I went back and read the speech online, the one that's in the movie. It's a little bit different from the one in the book. But like, I get teary-eyed anytime I read that. And I think about that scene from the movie and you know what that part of the book is all about. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. 
because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. There's a quote from Man's Search for Meaning where, where Victor Frankl's talking about suffering and said, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is a part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. Mm -hmm. So this mentality of life throws these things at you, and some of them are really horrible, and you endure. You continue on, you find meaning in that. And Sam is sort of that character in the book where he's always pushing Frodo on. He's always hopeful. He's always finding a purpose in their shared suffering. Hope definitely plays a role in the book and certainly in therapy. That's one of the first questions I ask to a patient. This kind of gets into something else we might be talking about in terms of suicide prevention, but how often are you having thoughts of ending your life? And on the flip side, why do you want to continue living? And that's an odd question to ask somebody, and I'll sometimes even preface it by saying, this is an odd question, but why do you want to keep living? And it really cuts to this heart of, like, well, what's my purpose? What is my reason for continuing to wake up each day, to get out of bed, and to go do whatever? So certainly with how it affected Tolkien, uh, being exposed to what he had to go through in World War One and, and other events in his life, it just certainly translates into how he wrote. Um, it's just very powerful. Hope is very powerful. Hope is limitless hope is always there there's always hope no matter how drab things get there's always hope there's always something there whether it's friends whether it's this or that and michael you were talking about suicide prevention and that's something that you work in can you please talk a little bit more about that certainly as part of my role at the va veterans affairs i have a i was gonna say benefit or luxury i just really enjoy my work i'm located in a primary care clinic so it's where for example take the VA out of it if you go in to see your doctor because you have a cold or because your knee hurts or whatever that's the type of clinic I'm in so I'm not in a specialty mental health clinic the sign on the door doesn't say mental health it's not scary or anything like that so it removes a lot of the stigma of interacting with patients I'm just another member of their primary care team so my office is next to physicians and nursing staff I do a lot of same-day appointments where a person's just in the clinic to meet with their doctor about symptoms A and B, and the doctor or the veteran might say, yeah, I'm feeling a little depressed, or I think I might be drinking too much, or yeah, I've been having nightmares, or whatever the case may be, and there's no waiting time. They just can come and, and meet with me. So I really appreciate that prevention component. And as part of that prevention, it's asking those questions that maybe don't get asked in day-to-day -day life of, I don't even say, are you? I said, how often are you thinking about ending your life? Same thing with substances. I'll say, how often are you using marijuana? I don't even give people an opportunity to say no. <laughs> I'm not yeah. using. It just normalizes it. Like, you know, having negative thoughts, having depressed thoughts, having anxious thoughts, these things are not necessarily abnormal. We all fear. We all have things when we feel down. So I really enjoy working on that front line of, of sorts to try to reach people who might not otherwise meet with a mental health provider. It takes a lot of energy to get connected to a counselor. A lot of times if you're depressed, you don't you don't have that energy. You were talking before about Frodo having a lot of support and a lot of people, they may not have the support or if they have it, they don't know how to use it or they don't want to. They don't have the energy to use it. 
being able to reach some of those individuals for suicide prevention efforts is really important to me. And on a personal note, suicide has unfortunately touched my life in a very close way. My brother, who was a professional firefighter and uh, a few years older than me, he completed suicide last year back in June of 2017. Obviously, that was very challenging for me over, over the past year and will continue in many ways to define my life going forward. Um, how I've been trying to channel some of that grief and work through it is to raise money for suicide prevention. And I've partnered with American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and another nerdy hobby gaming organization called Limitless Adventures. And I took some of the old stuff I wrote for my blog, updated it, and we're selling content for Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing game. It's some monsters I created. It's like 10 monsters. It's five bucks. It's complete with art and lore and all the stuff you would need to use those characters in a game. If anyone buys it, $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So it's not a for-profit thing at all. If you're interested in that, you can go to limitless-adventures.com. And the book is called No Assembly Required. And the reason I chose that title is to run these monsters at the table, you don't need to do anything. They're all set up. Everything you need to use them in a game of Dungeons & Dragons is right there for you. And if you play a different game besides Dungeons & Dragons, you could probably still use these creatures in there if you adapt them a little bit. So, yeah, suicide has definitely touched my professional and my, my private life in some pretty important ways. Man, Mike, thanks so much for all that you do and for sharing that with us on our show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that and for the amount of lives that you touch on a daily basis. That's extremely powerful. Yeah, most definitely. You know, you're the Sam. <laughs> just keep keep giving hope and keep giving that support that's um, funny we just we just had a conversation i went on vacation with friends and i was like the one person that changed the filter in the dryer like that <laughs> seems to be my role <laughs> i do the that conscien- too <laughs> you're the one that makes it happen yes yes <laughs> whether it's clean laundry or saving lives you do it all that should be on your business card Right, yeah, I'll tweet that out, you know. We're talking about hope, and Mike just shared how he spreads hope with his clients. Dr. Scarlett, you spread hope through connections with pop culture. Can you talk about how you do that? Sure. I'm incredibly privileged in working with clients who have experienced some kind of trauma, whether it's a sense of bullying, sexual assault, war-related trauma, or others. And what I'm able to see time and time again is the incredible strength and resilience that these individuals have, and I think very often might not even realize. It is at the moment that we feel our weakest, that we actually have access to our greatest strength. I think that is at the time that we don't feel like we can keep going, that we actually develop the wisdom, the compassion, the understanding about what it means to suffer so that we have a better understanding of people around us. And what I've seen with my clients is that through their own experiences, as well as through their own connection with their beloved pop culture references or characters, whether it's Wonder Woman or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, people are then able to use their pain to help others, much like Dr. Mellon here, much like you, Mike, who are now helping other individuals who may be experiencing suicidal ideation. A lot of my clients have now started their own activities or organizations, whether it's a network for people who experience sexual assault or a mental health club in someone's 
school or other awareness programs and prevention programs. And it warms my heart to see people not only finding a way to experience hope, but then using their own experience to inspire hope in others. So it's been my absolute pleasure to be on this journey and I'm so grateful to meet other people like you, Mike, in my career who are doing much of the same with other people and I'm extremely, extremely grateful. I'm really happy with vicariously living through a lot of the work you're doing. You know, you have a lot of great ventures, the books that you've written, the other things that you're doing, both online, but also in the community at at conventions and other projects. And I think there's kind of a growing presence of mental health, mental health providers being normalized in just general culture, that it's okay to talk about depression. It's okay to talk about anxiety and suicide and that going to therapy is not this weird, scary thing and that it it can be helpful to pretty much anybody. So I appreciate all that you're doing by just doing what you're doing in a very visible fashion to just help to normalize that. And even if you don't talk directly to people, I think being out there and promoting your efforts just encourages or plants a seed in somebody's heads of, oh, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do something to get some support, get some assistance. I hope it's all moving in a direction where people go to their doctor for physical issues and they go to their counselor for mental health issues. And it's just everyone goes to a counselor. (laughs) I think that would be amazing. So I hope things move in that direction. Thank you so much. And I do as well. This is the age of destigmatizing mental health disorders. Yes. Yes, hopefully. (laughs) Let's hope. That Um, is the hope. (laughs) Let's end on hope. It is a very good time to wrap it up. Mike, can you please tell us where we can find you on social media and maybe even once again talk about your special project that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the best way to contact me is through Twitter. I'm at the IDDM. It's T-H-E-I-D. DM. DM stands for Dungeon Master. So it's a, it's a nerdy, <laughs> nerdy course. title. And over the years since 2011 have written, I don't know, somewhere close to like 200 articles on the psychology, gaming, and some more autobiographical posts, including uh, some, some stuff about my brother and other elements of my background. So that can be found at the idm.wordpress.com. Again, the charity effort that I'm doing with Limitless Adventures, you can find that book at limitless-adventures.com. It's a dash, not an underscore. So limitless-adventures.com. And the book is called No Assembly Required. And again, if you're into role-playing games, I think you'd really enjoy the content. It has some very detailed monsters that are really fun and based on some pop culture references. Like I wrote the smoke monster from Lost and turned that into a D&D character. I thought that was just nice. kind of fun, fun to do. Uh, so anyway, it's called No Assembly Required. It's right on their homepage. You can click on it. And every penny goes to suicide prevention. Awesome. Thanks I just so much. clicked on it and it looks amazing. <laughs> yes, I had uh, my cousin, who's an illustrator, uh, do the art for the character. So there's some really great art in there. And even if you don't play D&D, but you know somebody who does, you can always give it as a gift. Thanks so much for being on our show. Yes, thank you so much for visiting. Thank you for being on our show. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was wonderful. So again, my name is Dustin. You can find me at The Valiant Geek on Twitter. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm at Shadow Quill on Twitter. And my website is superhero-therapy.com. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Keep up the hope and take care. <laughs>